You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Welcome to Rock Solid People, uh, a podcast where I, Max King, talk to individuals, amazing individuals, interesting individuals in the disability space. And today I'm very pleased to have with me Meredith Coote. Meredith, I don't even know where to start in my introduction to you, but let's kick off with 35 years in the disability and age space, government, not-for-profit, profit-for-purpose, improving social outcomes through evidence-based best practice. And we're very excited. I'm very excited because the reason that we are sitting down here now, not just because you're a fascinating individual with lots to say, but there is obviously a new thing that you're bringing into the Australian market called the community circles. And the community circles is something that I personally am very interested in. You were very kind to, to show us to that, but we're going to not go straight to, to the to, straight to the juicy bits. We're going to get, we're going to build some context around you as an individual. And uh, and let's start off with your career. Let's let's start. You said you've been in the game since you're 18. So only Hi, Matt. really nice to be here. <laughs> um, yes, I guess everyone who knows me will know that I believe context is everything. So it's really important to start somewhere. Yeah, look, I guess it's unusual these days. My children would laugh at me, but um, have been in the sector. Really, that's what I always wanted to do. Always wanted to kind of wrap my arms around the world, good or bad. And so started doing special ed and psychology and started as a support worker when I was 17. So back in the good old days. So that was, yeah, it was an extraordinary time. It was really just going into people's homes and helping families with kids and yeah, doing whatever I could to turn up and help people. That, yeah. That's how it started. And I was going to say, that would have been in the in the analog days, back before technology was an enabler, but also probably some somewhat of a disconnector as well. So, um, I do remember ringing my mum on a, on a phone where you put your finger in the button and the dial went round saying, I've never seen a mop like this before. How do I use it? <laughs> <laughs> These days I'd FaceTime and go, what is this? Yeah, so, what is this? And I, oh, just Google the YouTube video from the manufacturer yep. and next thing you know, you'd be, you'd be off and running. Um, I, I, I think there's some value in, uh, in, in harking back to those days of the dial phones. But yeah, so you've also said so you're a qualified psychologist. Yeah, so I did special ed in psychology and I think I was, I'm not sure whether it's lucky. I see it as lucky now. I probably didn't then. I went straight to England after finishing my degree and started working in a emotionally and behaviourally disturbed unit, it was called then. And it was pretty extraordinary as a new graduate. So I was dealing and helping people manage behaviours I didn't knew exist I didn't know existed. So and I came back here after two years and my first interview on the second day I got back was with the, the first behavioural unit ever opened in New South Wales. So we were the beginning of the biz team and we were setting up the first group homes for the last people that came out of institutions with really, I mean, I see that all those behaviours now are challenging to us. They're not necessarily challenging to them. So we really started the beginning kind of concepts of that all behaviour is communicative. And our challenge was to find out what it was that people wanted to say, what they needed and what they wanted. So I got pretty good at kind of walking into a room and, and guessing what was happening, which my friends hated. But it was an extraordinary, extraordinary way to start a career because you were with people when they were at their they're uh, the most difficult. So that would be in the middle of the night. It might be in a workshop. It might be whenever it was. We would be in family homes when, you know, family members were half naked and 
in deep distress while their family members were also in deep distress. While we'd be in schools, it was quite a remarkable way to start, I guess, what's been a really, really blessed career, full of gratitude for what I've been able to do. And I just want to just to take that back. So you were at that transition from institution to group homes and now you're seeing the transition from group homes to, I guess, um, we we would say more individualised approach to living arrangements for for people. And I know this is sort of off topic, but um, SDA and ILO and and all the transitions happen. Just a quick opinion on on the success or otherwise of those those policies, the the introduction of them and then... We need to forget the policies and look at what the outcomes are. As long as the outcomes are providing the most choice and control and support for people to live the life they want, I don't think it matters what acronym you put next to it. But we have to keep checking that that's the outcome they're achieving. Yeah. And and as you just mentioned there, the behaviours, any behaviours are a communicative approach. So that's, it's a really, Mm -hmm. that's a really, it's really, that's blown my mind actually. <laughs> just around just that very simple context of what you just said there. People are trying to communicate. It doesn't matter what the. It's our is. challenge, you know. It's our challenge. It's it's really not theirs, and we have to have the time and the space and the skills, um, and I guess the the energy to try and work out what people are trying to say, and then how do we best meet those needs? And and I think that takes all of us, right? This isn't just a sector role. And having worked with families, I was also a family therapist, so. I had the luxury um, in those early days of the training resource unit of working with families in their home and then being with them kind of in therapy afterwards saying, well, how are you all going? And that's that context piece, right? There's people's lives are complex. It's never just the person and what they want. It's what's going on around them and how do we wrap people around them to live better lives. But to do that, you have to understand what's happening for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. the... Guardian of a family member and now mum of a participant. Yes, so, yeah. So that's a long journey. I didn't expect it to uh, be at this point in my life where I'm living and breathing the NDIS. So I've had a um, been a guardian of a family friend for a very long time, and now um, my daughter is also an NDIS participant. So assisting her to to have the best kind of young adulthood that she can have, and self managing that, and managing um, helping her find out who she needs in her life to help her with all of the possibilities that, you know, that are before her. So not where I expected to be, but I guess some would say, oh, you know, you've had the perfect background to come to this point, but sometimes I think ignorance is bliss. Um, (laughs) I wish I didn't know. But look, certainly I feel privileged to kind of help her on that journey and, and she's remarkable. But it's tough being a carer, being a parent in this space is really, really tough. It's my biggest learning and I guess my most challenging role I've probably ever had. Yeah. And look, you mentioned uh, your own podcast that you mentioned, and that was exactly that around the the being a, a carer, the isolation that sometimes you felt sitting in your car, waiting for your daughter. Was that a sort of out of school or out of uh, after hours and stuff? And, and so you created the podcast that helped other individuals in the similar situation reach out to you and have, have a coffee. That's just that sort of classic human interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's all for me, it's all about connection. Connection and context, it's all those C words. Probably because my name is Meredith Coote, I don't know. Um, I was really lucky to be on the Carers Australia um, Advisory Committee in their COVID-19 project. So working with some extraordinary, extraordinary people doing extraordinary things every day. And I, I guess I should stop in that maybe it isn't extraordinary, maybe it's ordinary. And when people say to me, I don't know how you do it, you actually say, well, I, I don't have a choice. and 
it's just what you do. And so, yes, so we, as, as part of that, um, that work, we all, we did some podcasts, some of us with very different stories. So if you want to go to the Carers Australia website, you can go and listen. But I did uh, record some of the carers that I would sit in cars with, um, around our kids because like everything, you think that you're living this sort of this alone life that no one else shares. And suddenly you realize there are other people out there doing the same thing. And that's when we should join together and, and share those moments and see what we've got to support each other really important yeah and i think that's where some sometimes technology does benefit us um and i'm not going to get into a debate on facebook's merits or otherwise or, or, or other platforms but you know there isn't there is an enabling aspect of being able to connect with people that otherwise you may not be able to uh my wife for example we've just had a young daughter and she's in a part of a mother's group that's very much connected uh and came about through the, the you know the local health authority and the you know 12 mothers that didn't know each other previously and now are very supportive of, of each other and I feel like that's something that technology has has assisted with. Um, Absolutely. Mother's groups are just, you know, <laughs> renowned for joining people with a similar experience, <laughs> making them feel they're not mad. In fact, you're all mad perhaps, yeah. but really important well, to Yeah, no, to and in fact, I mean, we were very lucky. We were quite, or well, my wife was sort of you know, coping with, young motherhood um, quite well but there were other people in the group that she felt didn't and therefore they reached out to each other again through that through that bridging so stuff so again that support was was phenomenal and and, and i guess that sort of neatly goes into you, you you've got a, a huge passion for supported decision making and you know yeah. um, tell me about exactly how that has come about and the, the development of that the, the refinement and, and and i guess yeah Look, I think having worked at Public Guardian and Trustee and Guardian and really helping people, supporting people to make decisions for thousands and thousands of people in that time, really privileged to to work with an extraordinary clinical team in that space. So obviously I guess the, the irony was that it was a substituted decision-making space where people had had their rights removed to make their decisions. But what we were always trying to do is to lean into people and understand how they live their lives. Now, I always talk about in disability, you're often enabling will and preference, we call it, enabling people to go to the buffet of life and go, what is it that I like and what I don't like? Whereas in aged care, you're often re-abling, you're taking people back to, well, what is it that you love? Not that you can't develop new interests when you're older, you absolutely can, but what's getting in the way of, of stopping you doing those things? So I think it really took us into a space of, well, how do we support people to hold their rights as closely as possible to make their own decisions within that really interesting and challenging context of um, substitute decision-making, which, you know, in many countries of the world has been removed and I'm really still waiting for that legislation to come through. But I think what people don't appreciate about supported decision-making is that there are really serious consequences to helping people make decisions. So it's not something I can come in and say, oh, Max, you know, I'm going to help you buy a house and then run away and never see you again. Because sometimes, especially when you're supporting financial decisions, who owns that risk is a real question you have to ask. Mm. Who's going to be there through the whole journey and the end in case it doesn't work? Because, you know, I always think equality is, you know, the same good and bad stuff for all of us. Bad things are going to happen. So really trying to inform someone but helping them walk through the decision whilst understanding the risks and benefits is a real skill. And I think it's hard if it's owned by someone who's paid because they may disappear in the middle of that decision-making process and it might have really been led by them. And so it is a real skill to walk beside someone 
um, to help them understand risks that aren't yours, right? They're going to live the outcomes, not you. So how do you do that really well? And I sort of see all of these papers coming out recently from the agency around what supported decision-making is and isn't, and I think we have to really consider who is best to help someone do that, who stands behind someone and, and is there to catch them if it falls and fails. And in that, as you say, there's a myriad of potential upsides and potential downsides that sometimes a paid person may be the best person, sometimes a paid person may be the worst person. I mean, it's very difficult to, as you say, walk alongside someone and have that to, to, to support and assist, but not to be, you know, not to be the one that's making ultimately, you know, cho- cho- you know making the, the choice for someone else on their, you know, for, for reasons only known to yourself. It's a bit- I think also as a mum, you know, as a mum of a, of a teenage, well now young adult daughter, it's really interesting. I mean, for all of us, I guess, as parents, we are in essence supported decision makers, but really um, knowing what the risks could be in some of the things that she wants to do and being able to, just, I don't allow any meetings to happen without her. She's at the forefront of, you know, of, of everything. And often I have professionals say, well, do you really want her there? And I'm the first to say, we don't have a conversation without her. They're, they're her decisions. She has to live them. And so it, it, it tests you every day, but none of us know necessarily what's best. And I think that's the best thing about the change in legislation from best interest to will and preference is that they, they come from a very different place. Best interest, me deciding what's in the best interest of Max is so paternalistic and assumes so much knowledge that I don't have about you. Whereas if I take a will and preference view, then I'm suddenly trying to get to know you and work out what it is that you do like. What are your preferences? How do we help you live with those at the forefront of everything you do? Mm. So it's a, it's a different space. And I think it, it led me to a, a bizarre passion for the UNCRPD, which is probably not something many people say. But there's particularly Article 12 and 16, so in case you don't automatically say, know. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I had to Google it. I'm not going to lie. So um... Equal recognition before the law. So that idea that, that everybody, um, old, young, and in between, has the, the same rights to any aspect um, of life. So that's, you know, taking out credit cards and getting married and buying a house and doing all of those things. But trying to balance that with freedom from exploitation and abuse is really difficult because for me, there's this whole piece around self-management and living a, well, not self-management, living a self-determined life yeah. is how do you do that? So how do you build capacity for people to understand what they need, what their personal safeguards are. You know, you and I will have really different safeguards based on our circumstances. And I guess that's what led me sort of to where we're getting to with the community circles is this idea that, you know, commissioners don't keep people safe. Unfortunately, communities do. And we learnt with Anne-Marie Smith tragically dying last year that it's the community that let her down and her connections not being there and the lack of noticing that really impacted. And so I think when you look at the UNCRPD, we've got so far to go in really helping people be citizens of their worlds and their neighbourhoods and their streets and their families. How do, and I guess that's been the common theme in my career, is how do we raise the voice of the person so it's at the centre? But it's not just enough to raise a voice. You have to help build capacity around them so everybody is hearing them, so that they're the rhythm of life in their community, so that people notice and miss them if they're not there. That has to be our goal. 100%.
And so you and I have had conversations around the community circles, and I'm very keen to understand what they are, but also how you've managed to to sort of bring them to Australia. What's sure. I, I, I'm so excited, can I tell you, because I really think that they're wonderful. So I'm so excited to share this with the mm-hmm. listeners. Look, there there are solutions. So I've worked, I actually did put community circles into a previous role. I, tri- I trialled it a few years ago. And so having worked with um, Helen Sanderson and her wonderful tools probably for the last 10 years, they're incredibly useful person-centred thinking that I guess cuts through all of the, the forms and the and the um, compliance down to what really matters to someone. So I had, you know, I was really aware of, of that, the model, and I thought I really needed to bring a model that already existed because of the learning and the reputation and the tools and the training that came with it. So I guess, as I said, after Anne-Marie Smith dying last year in a really wonderful um um opportunity to work at Mabel and to, to understand what it would mean to run self-managed teams and to help people really start to with true choice and control there was still this piece that was glaringly missing and it was how do we fill the gaps between surfaces how do we build horizontal bonds not just these vertical funding um, kind of streams between people so really look to what there was out there and thought there's a natural fit here in terms of values and beliefs and there's already as i said strategies and tools so went to this amazing um charity touched by Olivia Foundation who already have built 40 plus incredible inclusive playgrounds across Australia and decided that we'd partner together with um, Helen to bring community circles to Australia. So it's really, you know, it's it's what we've been talking about, I guess. It's how do we put, how do we consciously and intentionally build glue between people and their communities? And so, you know, the model really simply is it's about helping people live better lives through connections it's about intentionality. So, you know, you might have family that are always saying, as I do as a carer, lots of people, can I help you? And you have no idea what to say because you don't want seven lasagnas in the fridge on a Tuesday night in the freezer. Who likes lasagna that much and where are you going to put them? So how do you say, all right, if I need help, what's the first thing I do? I look to myself, what, what do I need to get more information to know um, what to do, then how do I go to technology? Is that really easy next step? Is there technology that can help me connect and and feel more confident? Then looking around my home at what sort of adaptions can be made to, to my home and then that family piece, which I think is the really critical piece, how can people do things more intentionally? So how can I say to my family and friends, actually, yes, you could come around on a Tuesday afternoon when I have no one and I actually get really lonely and come and watch The Bachelor with me or I really like to ride a horse or I love animals. Could we go and help me volunteer at the local vet? So all of those pieces that, let's face it, you know, funding is never adequate, not for anyone in aged care or disability. And so if we don't step up as communities, um, you know, you and I, um, with respect, Max, are going to get older. And if we don't get this right now, then it's going to be really difficult. You know, in aged care, 10 to 12 hours of support a week in in a level four package just isn't adequate. And in disability, I think we are still failing in many areas. And, and should your support workers be the ones that go out with you and go shopping with you and go to church with you? I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. So how do we use those funds really differently? And so community circles are really simple. It's I want a circle. Um, they're facilitated and I guess having run circles of support for many years and been in them, 
What's different is the facilitation piece. So that a facilitator becomes trained by by us and that there's that regular sort of building a community practice. Um, once you're trained, a facilitator will go out with you because every circumstance will be different. And I guess the exciting thing for me is we talk about co-design and I want to get to go production where I think everybody's circle will be co-produced. Everybody's circle will have a different purpose. It will look really different. In England, all of the purposes get met. So it is about goals still. It's not just about meeting once a month with a great group of people. It's what are we focusing on? What do you need to be different now? What's working and what isn't? How do we shift the stuff that makes a bad day into a good day by using, by scaffolding your paid and your unpaid support? And for many people, let's face it, with NDIS, they're not getting people with a disability don't have a plan and they desperately need us to do things differently. And so I think it's, for me, it's that pause of how should we be living? Who should care? I guess is the great question. And how do we take care of each other better? And I think if we, we all know it takes a village to raise a child. And I think we keep saying it. So I thought, well, if not now, when? And if not, who me? <laughs> um, and I guess, you know, with, with some really honest um, self-reflection, I, I don't want my daughter to be surrounded by fabulous providers when she's older. I want her yeah. to be surrounded by people who care. So how do you build that? How do you build it intentionally? How do you help people who really want to care? So I think the interesting thing in in um, circles is that whenever someone's asked, they're pretty pretty chuffed to be invited to do something that's really important. But what I love about it is it's it's not just I have to come over and help Max. It's I can define what I have to offer, what my strengths are to Max, how often I, you know, I can do it for two hours a week or two hours a month. It's up to me to define that. So it's not about just finding the same people all the time. It's about trying to use your community differently, but also getting the community to think, what could I contribute? two hours a month to someone. What are my strengths? It might be you're really good at mapping and you might want to go to someone's circle and go, I know the community really, really well. I'm here to help find those those magical things that you need. But you're also really critically, and I guess coming back to our conversation earlier around building capacity, you're building capacity of people to start solving their own problems. So thinking locally, acting personally, and also I think building a really critical workforce because the skills that you get as a circle facilitator are pretty profound. And you know, my dream would be that every volunteer, every person that wants to contribute to their community has this superpower of I can run a circle if someone's just come home from hospital and needs a bit of help. Uh, if someone gets cancer, if there's a person with a disability, if it's an older person, here's a strategy I have where I can bring people together to lean into that person and go, what is it that you need that we can help you with? And then I think what you'll get is this really different type of paid services because they'll be doing the things that need to be done by paid services but not replace them. And that uh, we've all talked about just enough support. I think we get a bit nervous about just enough support because it sounds like we don't need funding. And this is not about not needing funding. It's about sometimes services replace freely given flourishing relationships. So where should the right person sit to help you be a citizen of your community? 100%. I think you've made the, uh, you've made the analogy before around going to church and uh, on a Sunday rate for a support worker, which is quite expensive, being taken to church, which may not be uh, where the support worker wants to be, seems like a, a 
a bit of a waste of resources considering the church congregation probably not every church i'm sure but it probably has someone who will take you to church who lives locally who would love to go with someone else who can talk about the sermon or talk about the flowers that are growing in the garden or whatever it may be that's you know that has that much purer connection and much richer connection as you say from community and i think that's a really a really powerful analogy because it's exactly I that. Think the work has got a role in that connection right the work has got a role in intentionally saying okay for the next you know two sundays let's go find someone at church who yeah. you know it's going to yeah. be the coffee yeah. afterwards let's you love flowers or you love whatever you love let's find someone not just to take you to church but that you can you can find a relationship with and build one and then the support worker moves those hours to another part of their life where they're most appropriately used. It's that intentional piece. I know I use it a lot, but I think often we have to just pause and say, you know, in the ideal world, who would fill that space? And, you know, I, it's so sad that so many people um, have only paid workers in their life and it's not how yours and my life should run. It's not how anyone's life should run and it doesn't make you feel valued or loved or cared for. So how do we flip it? Yeah, and so tell me the there is obviously a formal training for the facilitators. There's something that you that's something that you yeah. put them through. Is that a process? I'm just curious about the sort of practicalities. Is that a long course? Is that something you do? Oh, it's a really quick course that you can do online and out of COVID, um, yeah. doing a group, um, and lots of resources that they get to access. And then, as I said, the real key is that the facilitator will come out with that person and start to help them run the circle so they're not just kind of left alone, but also in that lovely kind of self-directed continuum. At any time, they can put up their hand and go, you know, the circle's a bit tough or I'm not, we're not achieving what we think we'll achieve, so can you come back in and help me? And really building that community of practice ideally between all of the facilitators in a local area because we're better together. We don't all have the answers. So, you know, having the opportunity to say, oh, you know, this, this person's looking for this sort of activity or do you know someone who loves doing this who might be a great facilitator for this person? So what happens in England is a lot of those circle members start to say, I really love this. I'd like to be a facilitator for someone else's circle. Um, which is fantastic. So that's really important. And what we're looking at now is I think the uniqueness of the role is that we believe it needs to be paid to be a, for the connectors anyway. And so just because it means that you have more choice and a little bit more control. And the English model is really about getting away from this idea of, with respect to myself, middle-aged white women doing good, this idea that you'll get all different sorts of people from community. So in England, they have a two-hour club where they say, Surely in you have two hours in a month that you could donate, contribute to someone in your community with your particular skills and strengths. So you'll get, ideally, I have, we've got two 93, a 93-year-old and 89-year-old that are currently wanting to be trained as facilitators. So, And you'll get people with a disability and young autistic people saying, because that, that's who you want to run yeah. your circle perhaps. So this is about everybody. It's about everyone in community and it's a movement and it will you know take some time to grow but the luxury I guess of working in a charity that's so purpose-driven and we're building an app around it which is all about you so really this very person-centered you know this is this is who Meredith is this is how like what my good support looks like this is what's important to me and then an ability for everyone in the circle to communicate um, around what they're going to do with a bit of a check-in to make sure there's some accountability So really putting the person at the centre of everything all the time and so that they can control their story and their narrative and make sure that everyone's always reminding themselves 
why we're here and what we're here to do. Back right. to the why, Max. Yeah, Back yeah. To the why. Well, you mentioned that you've been dealing with the uh, the the two individuals from Ex Situ, um, and, and I think they, I think that uh, card based approach to learning who you are, because sometimes I don't think sometimes we we know who we are, and if you do that sort of, you know, that kind of idea of a psychometric testy type. Yeah. Now, look, April and um, April and Beck have done an extraordinary job in in really helping people work out what their values are yeah. in a way that it's quite surprising because it might be smells and tastes and it's just another way to actually start to think about what's important to me. But I think for me, this is genuinely self. It's person led and it's co- and it's genuinely co produced, and I think that's the difference. And I think that takes time, and you know, I. It takes time to get to know someone, to get through their bad days, to perhaps get to different information. And certainly when I was at um, Trustee and Guardian, you know, it, it was never a one conversation. It, it takes time to get to know people, to build trust, to build mutual respect. So having time, I think that's what the circle does is it works in collaboration, of course, with providers and, and helps people be noticed, but it will also act as this natural safeguard of is there something going on in this person's life that may not have been picked up if they were self-managing and didn't have a lot of people in their lives. This is a way to scaffold their lives and bring other people in just for some eyes and ears and some care and some noticing, which I think will really profoundly impact how people can um, self-direct their lives and feeling a little safer, even if they don't always understand they need it. I think over time, hopefully people will feel more supported with more people to go to when things go wrong. And I think that's definitely, that. I mean, that will definitely come out of it. That, as you say, more supported by more people that they can turn to. Um, so for people to get in touch, if they're interested in either becoming a facilitator or creating a community circle for themselves what's what's the next step so we say who do you know do you know someone that wants a circle who wants to be part of a circle who wants to be trained as a facilitator so it's really who do you know so you can go to you can contact me directly which i'm sure max will put attached to this you can go to the touch by olivia and community circles australia websites and linkedin pages on linkedin at the moment we're really trying to practice one of helen's practices we meet with her every two weeks and we're really working with her on um developing this kind of slightly different australian um community circles australia so we're sort of doing this working out loud piece where we're being quite vulnerable and courageous and saying we want to build this with people so we're starting to build some stories we've got a few circles about to start and looking for facilitators. So we're really trying to look at, you know, areas where, and some providers, this is about partnerships of purpose. So who wants to join us really? Anybody can. So some, some volunteer organizations are, some providers, some peak bodies and just community groups. So, and just people really. And so just to be clear, then the website to get in touch with is, is the Touch by Olivia? It's Community Circles Australia. Community That'll get Circles you there. Australia. Uh, and Touch by Olivia Foundation will also get you there. Fantastic. So. Well, Meredith Coote on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure we can find you. Uh, I know that you've talked to, to me about Windsor Caribbean Shire Council. I, we're going to take that offline, but I know that we're very keen to do that. I think the team were very impressed. Um, so that's that's really it's good that we've wet those appetites as well. Final thoughts, you've talked about values-based recruitment. I'd just like to touch on this because it's important, I think, to, to just have a – define that to me, please, and just what, – what... Sure. Look, I think, once again, um, Helen has done a lot of work. Her, her models in England are around the Burt model of self-managed teams. And so 
doing some work um, alongside her around values-based recruitment, which in the provider world is about self-managed teams. So you're getting rid of hierarchy. It's bringing the decision-making as close to the person as possible. So how do you do that in large organisations? For me, the adaptation is in the idea of self-management and self-managing your teams. So a little story, recently I'm about to lose uh, one or two of my support workers just because they're moving and having babies and things like that. So was really looking for well, where could our next, um, Claudia's next worker come from? And it hit me while I was doing this values-based recruitment work of why we choose people isn't just their interests and their availability and how they look and, you know, whether we share things. It's actually about shared values. And I think we don't talk about it enough because that sounds really hard. But what happened is a fabulous friend from Carers Australia, um, while going through a pretty tough time with my daughter, offered her her sister, her sister-in-law up as our dog walker. Sounds really a strange story, but anyway, go with it. Um, and so this wonderful young woman who was doing psych at uni and living close by turned up while my daughter was doing her trials every day for two months and walked my puppy. Now, I offered her money. She didn't want money. I'd give her coffee money. Um, when she got sick, I sent her a massive hamper because that was my way to sort of show my appreciation. But suddenly my support worker who was, was leaving said to me, um, I know the best support worker for Claude. And Claude said, wow, it could be our dog walker. And I think but what it was, it wasn't that she was just our dog walker. It was she demonstrated this extraordinary value of I care about people I've never met. I care about my community. I care about you and I've never known you. And so I think there's some real work here we can do on trying to create curate teams that really are based around our values because that's when it doesn't work. And I think we often don't think about that. So how do we get better at at joining with someone and identifying what it are, what it is that our values are and what values the person who's supporting us has. Because I think that's the key. I think it's very, very, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the story you just told there is exactly why it's, it's key because to demonstrate those values and, and alignment and to, to, to show, as you say, that there's, that, you know, that there's a, I guess a, Symbiosis. It's a connection. It's a connection. connection. Yeah. You know, it's a simple thing that we all would like. And, you know, we, we talk about the same thing. You know, we, we talk about, you know, we're, we're dealing with a younger cohort of, of, of people that we're trying to support in a peer group. Exactly that. We can't be having, no offense to either of us, <laughs> middle-aged carers come, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, and not have that connection with, with, uh, with, with the person that they're supporting. So, I think, I think it's a really exciting piece that, you know, I think there's some work to do on, but certainly I'm working on it at the moment. And I, I think it does take time, though. And, look, it doesn't matter where you're getting your workers. They can be from, you know, from Mabel and higher up and it can be the person across the road. I mean, this is all about choice and it is about safeguards as well. And obviously that piece is really is critical around making sure not just values but everything else is aligned. But we, it is ultimately this is a story about connection. It's a story about community it's about finding people who who will care with you and for you and once you've found that i think you can find this extraordinary recipe of living your best life how do we flourish we flourish by connecting to people and you can do that also by using community service <laughs> nice segue uh meredith thank you so much for your time we will be posting a lot of information and, and, and links to connect to you. So people will be able to find you if they would like to. I can't wait for us as an organization to work with you. 
uh, I think it's very much aligned with how we see the future and, and what I'd like to see. It's amazing that you've got some technology being in there. I love the technology side of it. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. I like the ex situ uh, situation as well. I've always loved Bert's org, although I've never seen it really applied well in Australia. So I'm keen to talk to you about that off- offline as well. And I think, in fact, we've got Helen coming onto the podcast in a couple of weeks' time, I think, as well. So I've reached out to her, which I'm excited about. Uh, Meredith Coot, final thoughts? Let's just keep doing good work together, that's all, and let's just keep looking to our communities. So I think we just have to keep trying harder to connect to each other differently. Awesome. And I think it's an extraordinary um, group of people trying to do amazing things, and I think we just have to keep reaching out to each other. Wonderful. But thanks for having me, Max. It was great to chat with you. Thank you very much, Meredith Coot. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.